House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Mr. Michael Butterfield has dropped in in, in, in between his Hollywood career. Hi, Al. <laughs> yes, ah. Sorry, I missed the uh, his, history mysteries. Yes, unfortunately, you were. Uh, you I had, was uh, COVID. COVID. So, yeah, COVID. Did you miss out? I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't get to see you there. Yeah, three weeks of COVID. Uh, <laughs> it, it went well. It was yeah. a good, uh, good experience. Well, it'd be exciting, but when will it come out next year? Probably, I guess. I guess you know the standard cycle is usually you know doing these things for the next coming season but you know seasons are different now with the streaming and everything so yeah don't worry i'll be sure to let you know when it's on so i'll be sure to watch it <laughs> <laughs> i think it'll be good we'll, we'll see we'll find out well speaking of good we have got a star today mr hank schwabel thank you for coming on the show thank you for having me hank i have to say how does how does um one get into this type of writing Pretty traumatic childhood is probably the best way to start. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so what happened that was so bad that you start writing about no, this kind of... You know, that's that's the funny thing. I, I really don't have any sort of triggering event or events or really trauma. You know, I came from your typical broken home situation actually a couple times, but I, I didn't feel particularly traumatized by it. I had a Pretty happy childhood, but I was always fascinated in the macabre, the scary, you know, monster movies, uh, things like that when I was a kid. Um, a lot of it may have been due to my stepfather taking me to completely inappropriate movies <laughs> when I was like six, seven years old. Yeah, like what kind of movies are you talking uh, about? You know, I remember, uh, I think, The House That Dripped Blood. I was like five oh. years old or something like that. and. <laughs> You see uh, Peter Cushing's head on a platter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. I, I have this, if it was that movie, I have this uh, very vivid memory of a scene where I'm sitting in the theater, you know, and it's this giant screen, and this woman chops the head off a rat and then picks it up by its whisker and eats the head. And I was having a hard time <laughs> as a five-year-old trying to process, why would she be doing this? <laughs> yeah. It exactly makes sense. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know they were scary, but it sort of desensitized me to uh, you know the fright. But at the same time, it also created an intrigue because I, from an early age, those formative years, you know, um, was exposed to that kind of thing. And I, that's a precocious kid, and I uh, really followed those plots, and uh, I was always fascinated about the story behind what was going on, like the the legend or the the rules of the particular monster or curse or those always interested me. And uh, that really stuck with me. Plus uh, I had really uh, enjoyed reading Edgar Allan Poe when I was a kid. And oh, yeah. it just so happens that my uh, interest, you know, with horror movies was married to uh, early exposure to Poe in school. And uh, the combination of those things, I, you know, really set me probably on that path more than anything else. Even though I didn't know it at the time, it wasn't, I didn't really start writing uh, other than dabbling uh, seriously until uh, right after law school. 
but it was a long, a long period where uh, I was just a consumer. Were little animals missing in your neighborhood when you were a kid? <laughs> Anything like that? No, I, I, uh, I can, I'm happy to say that I did not uh, rate on the scale sociopathy at all. Um, so I was able to fool that test really well. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, you know, I was a pretty normal kid. I was uh, very into sports. Um, you know, I, uh, I don't think I was particularly geeky or anything like that in school, but uh, I hit it well. I was really interested in horror movies and uh, uh, horror literature and reading, you know, but, uh, but I was pretty well-rounded, too. That's what I find fa- fascinating, in a sense, because you're kind of uh... – you're the all-around guy, you know, uh, University of Florida, uh, law school, Air Force officer. Like, you've got all this stuff. Like, you are the American dream. Yeah, I was always a pretty all-American kid, you know, apple pie and baseball. Um, but I just liked horror movies, <laughs> and I liked horror stories. And, uh, you know, I read uh, a lot as a kid, and I really devoured comic books. And comic books probably also had a a large role in shaping, uh, you know, my, my tastes, you know, and, uh, comic books, particularly Marvel comics that I read, they all, they often had a, a, a bit of a horror, uh, whisk to them. And, uh, it, it all fed into what I considered to be interesting and entertaining and fun. And, uh, that never left, you, you know, through college, I was still a big horror movie buff. And I would read horror novels. Um, interestingly, uh, the older I got, the less horror I read and the more crime fiction I started reading. Um, thrillers, crime thrillers, noir. Uh, now, I still like horror, but um, I, uh, I don't just exclusively dine on that kind of fare. I, uh, I probably, the majority of my reading uh, is taken up by uh, mystery, noir, crime thrillers, things like that. I still read horror, particularly horror short stories, um, but but I'm a little more uh, broad in my reading these days than I was back as a kid. Well, noir is kind of, at least for me, it's been addictive. (laughs) Um, Oh, no, I I love noir. Yeah. uh, You know, they... It, it's uh, it, it all feeds at the same trough in my mind, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, horror and noir. It, it's exploring the dark side, um, and uh, you know, crime and mysteries tend to explore the dark side in other people. Noir sort of explores the dark side in all of us, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know, horror is explores the dark dark side with more of a what if, you know, what if, what would this bring out in people? At least the good horror to me. You know, it, it, it's really about us. It's not about the monster. It's not about, you know, the vampire, the werewolf, or the curse, or the the slasher, really. It's about us and our reactions to it and what scares us. And um, it's an exploration of uh, what we do when we're confronted with that kind of thing. Yeah, and noir, I think, especially when it's attached to horror or crime stuff, it, it, like you say, it's really it's like a dark window into uh, human beings that doesn't, um, allow you to hide behind all the uh, window dressing of a yeah, lot of it other strips kinds us. Of stories. Yeah, it strips us bare a little bit, and uh, I see a lot of potential there, which is why I often, uh, you know, kind of wed the two, uh, noir and uh, even, or just even crime uh, with horror into my stories, because uh, you know there's that long-standing link between uh, you know you do bad things and bad things happen. 
and uh, it's it's exploring that aspect because uh, you know, we all have a dark side. Uh, some of us control it better than others, but uh, it, it's a literature in general is an exploration of you know, what it means to, to be human. What is what does it mean to to have a life here? What is the meaning of life? You could say, uh, and uh, we do that through character studies and uh, you're raising big questions. And uh, what I like about horror and noir is uh, that they raise questions like that. It's just they raise dark questions. And uh, that causes a lot of people to shy away from it. But um, I would argue that horror has as good, if not better, a pedigree in literature than any genre. I mean, if you look back, you could argue the first the first real story, you know, was horror. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could Grendel, you know, mm-hmm. was a horror story. Oh, yeah. uh, the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I mean, you read the Odyssey; it's an adventure horror story. But I don't see how you could say it isn't horror if, with all the monsters <laughs> that yeah. are involved. Um, so it it really uh, is the stuff uh, you know that goes right to the core of who we are historically. Um, there's a long tradition. You know, and, uh, you know, in Western literature, uh, you've got, uh, you know, iconic works, you know, from Mary Shelley, you know, through Stoker, of course, and, and then uh, an explosion of it in the 20th century. Um, but I think that horror got a bad rap because of movies. And the movies tended to be geared toward uh, teenagers. Yeah. Uh, and so they focused a little more on the prurient, you know, and titillation and jump scares and gross outs. And people just started over the long haul associating that with horror in general. And so if that's what people think of when they think of horror, that's what they're going to think of when they think of horror literature. But it's uh, it really does a disservice because uh, not just to horror, but to, to book lovers everywhere because they're missing out on some great pieces of literature. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Dracula, for example, is extremely well-written as a novel. Uh, it's epistolary, you know, it means in the form of letters and journal entries, uh, but it's very, very well-structured, and, and the prose is exquisite. You know, you have to make a few allowances for uh, the time period, but not many. And Poe, Poe's, some of Poe's best stuff, the prose for the 1840s, is absolutely stunning to me. It, not just the actual sentence structures, but the way he presents a scene is so modern. I think and, that's one know, of the reasons why he's influenced so many people, especially early on in their lives. Yes. Well, you know, we, we have the French to thank for that because they sort of resurrected him. Uh, he would have been, I think, pretty forgotten had uh, he not been discovered by some French scholars who uh, really uh, – were fans of his use of symbolism and things like that and taught it a lot. And it kind of revived him and he became of academic interest in, uh, in the U S too. And, uh, we're fortunate for that because, uh, it really, he really was extraordinary. Um, he, he invented basically the modern horror story and the modern detective story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How's that for a career? You know? Well, that brings up an interesting question I wanted to ask you. You said that you had, you know, read less horror and more crime and other things like that. And I'm wondering if you're a little bit like I am in the sense that I grew up, you know, reading a lot of horror and watching horror movies and stuff. And then at a certain point, my interest changed more to crime and true crime stories. And I'm wondering if that's because that's real horror. 
<laughs> uh, I'm sure that has a lot to do with it um, because you start as you get older and more mature, you start wanting to focus a little more of your, of, you know, your your passive investigations, we'll call it, when you're reading into uh, things that are a little more relevant to your, you know, to your life and uh, crime obviously is. Uh, part of it is also due to uh, there is an abundance of good crime fiction out there, uh, you know, a lot of good mysteries and uh, not, not so much noir, Honestly, uh, I mean, look, I love noir. It's just it's not as ubiquitous as, uh, you know, mysteries and other crime fiction are. Uh, but I have to say that, you know, when horror is good, it's awesome. When horror is bad, it's awful. <laughs> you know, when a, when, a, when a crime novel is bad, it's like, eh. You know, when a horror novel is bad, you're like, ugh. Yeah. Ugh, who, what, what did I, how can I get that part of my life back? Um but, uh, you know, it's a big swing or miss kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I have a lot of writers that are go-to in horror. I won't name them because I don't want to exclude anybody. But uh, uh, I really enjoy any kind of literature that is has got very strong characterization, polished, fluid prose, and uh, in a gripping uh, premise or, or plot. And... Uh, so I'm not really going to limit it to genre. I read a lot of classics, too. I try to you know, kind of force myself, um, not because I don't want to, uh, but because they're not front and center. They're not the new, shiniest thing. So I have to go back and figure out what I have not read, and which is not too hard, <laughs> but uh, and go find those things and pull them up and be disciplined that way to make sure that uh, I don't just uh, give into recency bias in my tastes. Well, that's very interesting. I'm also curious, did you read a lot of those uh, Alfred Hitchcock short stories when you were young? Uh, I, I will say I read a lot of them, but I certainly read some of them, yes. And uh, I didn't have just access to everything, you know, as a kid that way. Uh, I had access to comic books, let me tell you. <laughs> there was a comic book store a few blocks away, not even a comic book store, it was a convenience store, or what would, would they call it, like a pharmacy, I guess, that had a, you know, the old-fashioned uh, counter with the soda fountain stuff. And they sold comic books, and I, I really, really indulged in that, because it was close by, and, uh, you know, my stepfather would, wouldn't mind if I got comics, and he would pick them up for me all the time. And so I was uh, awash in comic books, so I read a lot of comic books. And uh, I would read then whatever I could find around the house, you know, you know, and uh, fortunately, my parents, while they weren't, you know, the most learned people, uh, they did have lots of paperbacks lying around, um, and I would grab them and read them. I remember I read Jaws <laughs> when I was, like, in the first grade. Oh, my God. Something like that. Maybe the second grade. might have been the second grade. Somewhere in there. It was ridiculous, and I shouldn't have been reading it. And, uh, you know, I still remember uh, being that young, reading it, that uh, – I understood pretty much all of it, or at least thought I did, but but one part where they were talking about one character being bisexual, and they referred to him as ACDC, <laughs> and I just couldn't quite understand what they were saying <laughs> when I was like seven years old, um, or eight years old, whatever I was, I couldn't quite get it, and uh, 
You know, that's why they have uh, parental guidance suggestions on <laughs> Yeah, there's, but, a, uh, there's a lot of stuff for the listeners. There's a lot of stuff in the book Jaws that is not in the movie. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's much different. <laughs> like, much different. Than the movie. Is it an affair but, between uh, Brody's wife and Hooper yeah. and the mob being involved? Yes, in plus a, a far less of a climactic yes. ending. You know, the, yes. the climax was a lot less satisfying than the movie. Yeah. Um, uh, but... Uh, but you know he wasn't really building for that kind of a climax. No. It was more of just the just what uh, the characters were going through. Now I'm curious though. You you said that you uh, read comic books. I know you said Marvel, um, but did you also read like horror comics back then? Because I was yes, uh, to and that. that was those frightened me. Yes, you know. Now by the time I got to be a teenager, I'd have to say really nothing could frighten me anymore because I'd been so exposed. You know. I can tell when something's scary, but it's really hard for something to scare me. I just I don't remember the last time I was actually scared, you know, at a movie. But it, uh, but those as a kid, I remember distinctly, even though I was getting quite jaded uh, by the time I was like eight, you know, years old. Those horror comics scared me because they had these really creepy covers. Yeah, yeah. And uh, unlike a movie. You couldn't turn it off, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so my my uh, stepfather would bring me comics, and he would go to a comic book store with me, and he would not only buy modern horror comics, but you know I'd try to convince him to let me buy an old Spider-Man here and there, things like that, and uh, he would pick up some of those old EC comics. Oh God, yeah. And he would read them. He would buy the old ones. You know, comic be- collecting back then. You know, was not as expensive as it is now, but he would spend a few bucks and get a an old 1950s EC comic or something, or a few of them, uh, because he remembered from when he was a kid. And uh, he would get them and read them, and then he would just throw them into my room. I'd see them laying on my bed, you know, so I could have them. And I remember some of those covers just creeped the hell out of me. And when I put them away in my drawer, I had several drawers dedicated to just comic books. I would be like in bed just thinking of them in that drawer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, not it wasn't like books where the words just didn't seem that way to me the way those depictions on the comic book covers did. Oh yeah, well, so much of that was about just visually striking. I mean, there's it was the perfect build up to watching something like The House That Dripped Blood. That's very influenced by EC well, Comics. Yes, yes, and uh, uh, like I said, though movies by then didn't tend to scare me that much. No, I'm sure I was scared at the time. Looking back, it didn't seem. But boy, when I remember those comics, I still can get that feeling just thinking about it. That Man, they just creeped me out. And uh, so, yes, I did. There was, uh, let's see, there was uh, uh, weird, weird, it wasn't weird tales. It was uh, weird ghosts was something from D.C., if I recall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh all the EC ones. Marvel had a few too. Marvel, though, was so into the superheroes uh, that uh, even some of their their monster comics are all superheroish. You yeah. Know? So uh, you know the Dracula, Frankenstein, and uh, Werewolf by Night comics, um, uh, which I had all of. I still do. You know, I still got you know lots of them. I have Dracula number one, Werewolf by Night number one, plus the Marvel Spotlight. You know that had the first appearance of Werewolf by Night uh, and the and uh, Frankenstein Monster, I guess it was called the Monster Frankenstein comic, um, number one, too. I, 
I've got all those. I love them, but uh, they weren't quite like those old EC comics. <laughs> no, no, that's a very different kind of thing. It's like most people think about that as like creep show and yeah, creep like show kind of and level right, tales from the crypt and things mm-hmm. like that. Those were the old EC ones. I was trying to think of the more 1970s ish ones that were coming out when I was a kid. So a lot um, of those are getting issued in great hardback anthology yeah, those, editions now. Yeah, those compendiums or mm-hmm. whatever they call them. They, um, yeah, those are great if you if you want to read them. Uh, that's definitely the way to go. Um, but yeah, they were you know the stories. Looking back, when I read the stories, uh, you know they were a bit schlocky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know they tended to be, uh, but. Uh, but as a little kid, it was the visuals that stood out and uh, you know, the graphic depictions that they'd have for the stories. So you didn't really pay much attention. But lots of skeletons walking know. around. Yeah, well, the disembowelments, yeah. you know, and eyes being pulled out, and, uh, uh, lots of decapitations, and, uh, uh, you know, lots of things involving edged weapons. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Where, yeah, it was it was great to uh, to be a kid back then uh, and have all those all those different influences. Uh, you know, when I look back now, because I'm sure it created who I am. It didn't it didn't damage me as far as I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of, but uh, it certainly created that kind of interest. And I'm sure that's why I'm interested in noir too mm-hmm. in crime because they're they're so closely linked in so many ways, oh, yeah. ways that people don't really think about. Yeah, and, you know, I'm curious now, too, um, you said you turned out okay, and it sounds like you're okay, but is there a part of you that enjoys scaring people now with your own writing? Well, sure. Now, you know, I'm sure Ted Bundy thought he was okay, too, <laughs> yeah, so I, well, I'm not sure, yeah. you know, my own uh, testimonial is worth much, but uh, um, do I enjoy scaring people? Uh, well, I'm not going to say I don't enjoy it, but that's honestly not what I set out to do. What I really set out to do is entertain people and get them thinking. If they can leave a story I write um, and it gets them to think about it, to think about, you know, a character or, uh, or something that was posed, a question posed or a theme uh, and it's sticking with them. It's lingering. That makes me feel like I've done my job. Well, and that's part yeah, of the idea, right, like is that you, you, horror and fantasy is a great vehicle for introducing ideas that people may not want to read about in other genres. Well, I think it's an it's a absolutely wonderful way to introduce people to ideas because, for one, you can do it stealthily uh, by having such freedom uh, with the subject matter, or I should say having so many different ways of of structuring you know, the subject matter that you're not as constrained with compared to like crime fiction where it's grounded in the real world. Uh, you throw the supernatural or surreal or fantastic into it. Well, that, that frees you up. That liberates you a lot. Um, in, when it comes to selecting you know, the, the vehicle for the themes that you're trying to explore. Um, so it's, uh, it's really brimming with potential. Now, I try to temper that because I don't think people are coming to these stories to be tackling the big themes all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they can go read Dostoevsky if they want to do that, uh, but uh, they want to be entertained. 
you know, and so the primary thing I just try to keep reminding myself is that, you know, people are reading these things because they want a good story. They want interesting characters. They want to uh, explore what these characters are going through and interesting situations and uh, be surprised and, uh, and uh, maybe excited and scared, too. Uh, they mostly want to enjoy themselves and also get the feel maybe that they're giving their mind a decent workout, that it's, uh, it's not just junk food. Uh, but I don't want to sacrifice character or plot or setting uh, for theme. I really don't want to do that because uh, it just then sounds like you're you're kind of imposing a chore, yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a lesson, and I, I I I don't want to do that. I don't want an agenda in there. I don't want it to be preachy. Uh, I want to raise questions often, you know, and uh, I want to provoke thought, but I want to do it while I'm first and foremost entertaining the reader. That's my primary goal. Yeah, and, you know, I think it was Stephen King that said something like, horror is a rehearsal for your own death. It's a, it's a way to confront things that scare you in a safe environment. That's certainly true for some things, yes. Uh, I don't know that that holds true for all horror, yeah, yeah. but uh, there are certainly stories where it does do that. It makes us confront our own mortality, it makes us confront uh, the big questions of, uh, is there anything else? You know, or is, is what we see and hear and touch, you know, is that all there is? You know, is the material world really what it seems to be, or are there layers? Are there other things that we're not aware of? Are there more things dreamed of, you know, are there more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in our philosophy? You know, that's the, that, that's the big question. So uh, I think he's right. I'm not sure that that definition goes broadly enough, but uh, I certainly wouldn't contradict it. Yeah. Now, you obviously deal into that sort of other world in your other books, your uh, Jake Hatcher books. Yes, those are, those are, they're horror, but they're, they're structured uh, as supernatural thrillers, really. Yeah. They're, they're adventure horror. Um, I do have some pretty standard horror aspects to them. Uh, but horror is hard to sustain for a novel. And I did not want to put readers through anything tedious because, you know, like any commercial fiction, tension is the coin of the realm. That's what gets people to turn the page is tension. And uh, tension comes primarily, you know, from conflict of some sort, uh, you know, a, a goal uh, or a peril uh, and things uh, standing in opposition to it that are trying to be overcome. And the reader wants to resolve the tension. You know, if you're doing your job as a writer, they're turning those pages because you've created tension and they want to resolve it. Uh, horror, by its very nature, promises a higher degree of tension. Because if it's the same kind of tension you get from a crime novel, they'd be wondering, well, why am I bothering to read a horror novel? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I can read a crime novel. That you, so you're kind of making a deal with them that uh, you're promising to give them a higher level of tension, whether they realize it or not, consciously. So that can be very difficult to sustain. And if you do sustain it, it could be exhausting for a reader. So I tend to... Uh, for novel-length works, tend to structure them as thrillers with that are that have a lot of horror and supernatural aspects to them. 
Uh, now, that might be splitting hairs, but uh, I think you'd find that my novels are a lot different than my stories, my short stories, because my short stories um, are more conventional horror in their approach. Uh, although a lot of people have said that I struck like noir, and that's probably not untrue. I, I'm, I, I'm very influenced by it, and I do like the noir um, uh, the noir platform, you know, to introduce horror a lot. So, uh, I yes, my novels are horror, but I would say you could probably get a better feel for them going in if you think of them as supernatural thrillers. And you were saying that uh, it's hard to maintain that level of uh, tension in a novel. Do you think that's one of the reasons why uh, short story, short horror stories are so effective and so popular? Uh, Absolutely. I absolutely think that's why, because uh, you can deliver something in uh, one sitting uh, and you can raise that tension level and you can hit them with a scare or or, or something extremely disturbing. Uh, and then you can let them think about it. You can let them, you know, let it linger and uh, you know, swim around in their subconscious there. Um, and that's what I think, uh, you know, good horror fiction does. And it's hard to do that with a horror novel. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but if you look at any good horror novel, it doesn't have that same kind of constant level of tension that a horror short story does, or it doesn't continue to build. And that might be a a better way to look at it too. Whereas in a horror story, you're going to kind of build that tension to a breaking point. And if you're going to do that in a novel, it takes a long time, you know, to get to the end of the novel. So instead, you might have a lot of peaks and valleys, um, which is uh, not uncommon in, in a lot of horror novels. But when you do that, you're really then getting into a more conventional genre structure. And so I, I kind of fit it into the genre structure that I'm most comfortable with when it comes to, uh, you know, novel length works, and that is thriller. That's what I, I kind of naturally gravitate toward. My next novel is coming out next year is a straight thriller. It's not horror at all. It's a novel called Darwin's Laws, which is a straight crime thriller. Um, and uh, I didn't really have any difficulty, uh, I didn't think, transitioning to that because I, I was already very comfortable with that structure. Uh, you, you know, I had done it a number of times already, so... Um, uh, all I had to do was kind of cut out the supernatural stuff and tone down the violence perhaps a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, other than that, it was the same, uh, the same basic approach to writing the novel. How do you choose what uh, supernatural or occult sort of elements you're going to use in this and, and how far you're going to go with that? Well, it just goes into what you do when you're, you know, starting a story and, uh, you know, a lot of people always ask, you know, where do you get your ideas from? And I tell people that creativity is not really inspiration. It's a process. And the, what you start with, you could call a useful premise. And that's where my stories usually come from. A useful premise is something that just seems like a neat idea. It's not a very well-formed-out necessarily uh idea for a story. It's just a premise, like what if, a what if question. Or it could just be a situation. Oh, that would be kind of neat. You know, what if 
this? What if you saw this? And then you tease it out from there. And so how I decide is where it, it depends on where I'm starting from. Uh, once in a while, I will look for an idea. And I have a lot of reference material, and I will flip through it just occasionally. When I'm looking, you know, you could say for inspiration, and I guess that's fine, but uh, I'm just looking for an idea to start with to then go through that process. One of my uh, stories in Moonless Nocturne is called Psychometrics, divided into two words. So I came up with that story and that title when I found uh, an obscure what seemed obscure to me, um, discipline of what you would call extrasensory perception, I guess, uh, called psychometry. I had never heard of it, uh, which surprised me because I'm one of those guys who always looked at all those paranormal shows, you know, growing up. And uh, if I had ever come across it, I did not remember it. You know? And psychometry was basically the uh, the belief that certain people – could get impressions and visions from touching objects. So, like, they could, for example, pick up a knife from a crime scene, perhaps, and they could get the impression of the person who wielded the knife and, and give you, reconstruct what happened from, from, this, uh, from the psychic uh, information they received from this object. And it was called psychometry. Well, I never heard of it, but I came across a little thing about it in one of my many uh, reference uh, books, and I thought, well, you know, if I had heard of it, <laughs> there's a pretty good chance a lot of people haven't heard of it. So that means it's uh, fertile territory, um, you know, for a story that would be somewhat original, you know, in that uh, there probably aren't a lot of stories out there uh, dealing with psychometry. So I took that and I teased on it, you know, I, I – tossed it around in my head for a while and I came up with the story psychometrics and uh, I like it. Interestingly though uh, psychometrics other than the psychometry is not really a, much of a supernatural story that's more of a crime horror story. Well where do the where do your characters come from then in a, in a situation like that that story you just talked about it sounds like the idea or the uh, theme is first and then the characters come into it. Well, it depends. See, in that example, it was. But that's not always the way it works. Sometimes it'll just be an idea for a character. Sometimes it'll be an idea for an opening line. <laughs> you know, um, that really, that, it's, that, uh, it's that diverse um, you know, an array of possibilities. Uh, when I was writing psychomet psychometrics, uh, when I came across that, I had absolutely no idea you know, what characters to use. I just, I, I thought, well, this is, this is a potentially uh, you know, fruitful mine to, uh, to go excavating. So I, uh, I sat down and had to think about it. So I thought, okay, what would make for an interesting situation involving psychometrics? And it occurred to me that to have somebody who was uh, you know, a, a psychometrist, I guess you'd call them, you know, somebody who engaged in that, to be the character – would be a little bit on the nose. So I instead came up with the idea of the party who had this supposed gift of psychometry was disabled and non-communicative for the most part and wheelchair-bound, uh, except for his sister, who was 
able to interpret what he was saying and could pass along the information and was offering his services to police departments and things like that to solve crimes. I just thought that made for a more interesting situation. And uh, it was just a pro- like I said, it was a process, but that's not the way the process always goes. Sometimes it's the character that comes to mind first. You know, oh, what if it was a gal who could do this? Uh, one of my stories in American Doctor in the prior collection uh, started just that very way. It's a story called Cold Service, and it start- the whole idea for that story came from uh, having remembered a newspaper article from many, many, many years earlier where uh, – I think you guys may have even remembered this. Did you ever remember hearing about uh, when this uh, migrant, uh, undocumented migrant uh, woman was brought into a hospital and uh, she was bloated and uh, uh, non-responsive, I think, and uh, they pierced her abdomen to try to relieve pressure and it released some kind of oh, fumes yeah. that knocked everybody out. Yeah, you remember that? Forensic Files episode about that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, that I I don't even remember what the resolution of that was. Yeah, they got a lot of other people. <laughs> I don't even remember what they, sick, right? And they yes, they got sick, and no, at the time, nobody could tell what the heck was going on. You know, the days later, nobody was certain. I assumed it probably was drug running of some sort. You know, um, she was a mule, and uh, there was some kind of uh, you know toxic substance in her being released uh, because the bags broke, uh, you know, or something like that. But I didn't know. Uh, but it was the whole mystery of it that I, that was, I was intrigued by. Um, and so I thought, well, what if one of the people who that happened to, you know, survived it and everybody else didn't, but she, uh, had special abilities after that. And that's how I started that, the idea for that story and teased it out. And, uh, you know, I, it, it was only loosely based, <laughs> you know, just, just the background scenario to the character was, you know, loosely based on that incident uh, where she had been a nurse, this main character. Uh, so the point is that I, uh, I, I don't ever approach it in one way. It's, you know, inspiration is where you find it and it's really less inspiration than it is perspiration. It's, uh, it's just work. It's a process. Um, you get better at the process of, but you can't sit around and wait for a muse to show up because, uh, you know, they're fickle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you won't get a lot done that way. You have to learn to control that, that creative ability uh, and direct it. Uh, now, you prod it, and that's what I do. I, I will often go looking for things to prod it. But more, and, more often than not, the, the proddings will present themselves. I just got to take advantage of them. I think you're talking about the case of, Gloria Ramirez, who is known as the Toxic Lady. So, if people want to look that up to get a little more info on that, that's I think. What you're I, I about. must confess, if I, as I was saying, I don't remember what the resolution, if there was yeah. one, to that, if they ever figured it out. With your characters, but they seem to be a distant person. Are, are you not a writer that lives through your character? Like you know, so many writers will talk about you know. Seeing them, feeling them, hearing them, smelling them—they're in, or they're like a movie, or in their brain. Well, I think of them as real uh, in the sense that I try to imagine a real person. Uh, I don't inject myself into them, uh, other than in ways that are unavoidable. You know, as the writer, uh, 
I just try to imagine a real person uh, with the background and, and situation circumstances, you know, that uh, I'm positing. Uh, and I just try to make them as realistic as I can. Now, the trick in writing is you write a real person, all you're going to get are yawns because people are boring under a microscope that way uh, when presented on a page. Uh, you have to make them a bit larger than life to make up for the fact that they're not three-dimensional flesh-and-blood characters. Uh, you have to make them more real than reality. <laughs> you have to make them, and by by that I mean you have to make them more vivid, and to make them more vivid means you have to make things more pronounced. Their personality, uh, their abilities, their uh, their quirks, their foibles, they have to be writ large. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to come across as real, and that's you know the weird part of writing. Uh, the irony is that the more real you make the character, the less real they'll <laughs> seem. If you were to just take somebody you know and write that person absolutely faithfully, diligently to who they actually are, people would say, well, these characters just don't yeah. seem real. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they just aren't big enough. They aren't big enough to transcend uh, the page, that to, to you know, rise above the written word and form a real impression on the reader. To form a real impression on the reader, usually you have to make them bigger than reality to, to make up for the fact that they're coming through a, a vehicle that naturally reduces them in size. So it's, it's just one of those little tricks. You know, if you go too far, uh, you know, that'll fail also. Uh, then it'll seem like a caricature. Uh, but uh, you have to find that happy medium where they come across as real, even though they're, you know, they're, they're real in the reader's mind. And that's what matters is how the, the character uh, comes to life in the reader's mind. Hmm. How, do you, how do you manage to write real evil characters in detail? Like, You've got to remember, I think, that evil characters don't really see themselves as evil the way we see themselves. We see them as evil. They see themselves maybe not as virtuous. They may not see themselves as heroic but they probably see themselves as justified. Uh, so you have to take, I believe, uh, that perspective and uh, take it into account. So I think that's where a lot of characterization fails, where, is when you create somebody who's just, uh, you know, almost a straw man, you know, for, for, uh, for readers to supposedly hate. Um, they're just not real because... That's not how people are. Even a serial killer is going to, in his mind, have certain rationalizations for what he does. Now, he may not think of it uh, the way we do because he may not have any empathy, uh, but he still has concerns. He still has goals. He still has reasons for doing what he does. Uh, doesn't mean they're very well thought out or that they're uh, understandable, uh, but they have to be communicable. You have to make sure that uh, that they're not just cardboard cutouts out of central casting, that they're not stock, um, that, that they're not caricatures. Uh, and so even if you're not conveying all those motivations, you have to know them when you're writing that character. Like Hemingway famously observed, uh, you have to do your characters like an iceberg, you know, as one-eighth of an iceberg is visible above the surface and seven-eighths 
you know, is hidden beneath the surface of the ocean there. Uh, well, he said your characters, your reader's only going to see that one-eighth, but you have to know as a writer that seven-eighths. That has to be something that's part of your understanding of the character while you're writing it, writing that character, because then the reader will sense that mass beneath the surface, just the way we sense the mass of an iceberg when we see that tip. But if you don't know that character and you present just the tip and you don't know the mass beneath it, it's not going to, it's not going to convey. So it's just going to seem like a little chunk of ice floating on the top of the water. It's superficial. Mm. So what do you, what do you um, hope people take away from this book, this newest one of short stories? And, and I mean that, do you have kind of a, a subtext ever in your, in your stories or some sort of meaning even if it comes out organically, or is this something that is just entertainment? Well, no, sure, there are some some questions. You know, I don't think it's good for a writer to pose answers to readers, because then you're preaching, you know, it's more polemic or propaganda uh, or, you know, uh, or lecturing. And uh, I don't think that's why people are reading, and certainly that's not why they'd be reading something like this. But I do think that it's good when you can pose questions and get people wondering about it and considering the ramifications or the implications of things. Um, and there are a number of stories, uh, if not all of them, that uh, you know, I think pose some questions. Uh, I say if not all of them because there are some where you probably have to think really hard <laughs> to come up with what the question would be because they're more there for entertainment. But uh, a, one of the stories in there called um, Everything Not Forbidden, is sort of a science fiction horror type story uh, set in the not too distant future. And uh, it has to do with the desirability of, uh, of designing an artificial intelligence to, uh, to improve society. Uh, I don't want to go into it more than that, uh, but uh, the main character is presented with uh, this demonstration of a new technology and uh, it's, giving him a glimpse of what the end result is promised to be uh, if they can bring this new technology online uh, in the way that they are uh, proposing and, uh, and uh, planning. And, uh, it's, you know, some people would like it, but, it, you know, he finds it horrifying. And uh, it, I, the question that I'm you know, posing from that is, uh, you know, is this going to happen? And if it's going to happen, if it looks like it's going to happen, are we just going to let it? You know, are we? Is this something we want? You know, is this uh, is this the kind of thing that we're heading toward? You know, and if we are, shouldn't we maybe not? <laughs> you know, and if we or do we want this kind of thing? You know, uh, so um, I did pose that one. You know, it's got some heavy heavy questions in the theme to that one. Uh, others are more personal and intimate questions about what it, philosophical questions that you could glean from, you know, reading the characters in there and what they do, and whether certain things are justified, you know, what is moral in a certain situation, you know, what, uh, what, at what point uh, can you justify taking certain actions, things like that. So, uh, you know, it's hard to tie them into particular stories because that would mean spoilers. 
but uh, there are uh, there are for the most part a lot of stories like that. But always, I try to subordinate that kind of thing to just an interesting story, an entertaining and interesting story. But so, what do I want to get out of the book? I want people to say, "Wow, that's really those are really good stories." That's what I want. I really enjoyed those stories, and uh, hopefully, they'll also say, "I really enjoyed those stories," and they really made me think. Uh, but you know that part is actually less important to me than enjoying them because that's the the threshold requirement is that these stories be enjoyable. Um, otherwise, you could just be, read a philosophy textbook or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, read one of my books. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I will say the most gratifying thing is uh, there's a, the introduction to this uh, collection. By the way, is written by F. Paul Wilson. Uh, you, iconic horror writer, you know, bestseller. And uh, he doesn't write introductions or things like this very often. If he ever has, I'm not even sure. Uh, So I was thrilled that he agreed to do this. Um, And, you know, he wouldn't agree at all until he read the stories. And so I was quite relieved when he said, oh, these are good. I have no problem doing that. So uh, that's quite an endorsement. Yeah, I was I was thrilled, really. Uh, But in his introduction, he uh, it was very gratifying to read where uh, he really pointed out that story, Everything Not Forbidden, and said that that really disturbed him, <laughs> that story. And he said, he said, that lingers with me. And he said, it, it's lingering with me still when he was writing the uh, introduction. So uh, that is, the, you know, that's a home run to me, especially yeah. given the source of that. But if I can get readers, you know, to have, a, to, to have that kind of a, you know, of an endorsement, as you said, or you know, to have it resonate, with readers yeah. that way. Uh, After you know, they put it down. That's yes, that, then I know I've done a good job. But at the very least, I want them to feel like they were glad they read it when they're done with that story. That's you know the primary minimal satisfaction <laughs> that I, I would get is to, to make sure that they, uh, they enjoy them. And I hope they enjoy all of them. And, uh, you know, some, obviously, some people are going to enjoy some more than others. It's almost impossible not to, so... Um, that's the hardest thing as a writer when uh, you hear somebody say, well, I like this one better than that one, because you always think, well, what was wrong with that other one? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. But, you focus on the good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I really liked it when he wrote this book. <laughs> you know, but you so. can't. You can't always please everybody. You can't. It's just impossible. With every story, there's no way. All the same? That would just be weird. <laughs> well, if you please F. Paul Wilson, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, I, I was. I was quite gratified. Well, so now, um, are you doing social media and you doing website? Um, so like, where do people find you? Well, uh, yeah, you, anybody who wants to friend me on Facebook, uh, you know, feel free. Uh, Hank Schwabel, uh, send me a friend request, uh, unless I look at your wall and it's just toxic, <laughs> you know, uh, then, uh, I'll probably accept it. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I do. I get friend requests from people, and I'll go to the wall, and it'll be yeah. like, you know, uh, oh, everybody know. from Party X should be you know, lined up and shot. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I really don't. Want yeah, that. yeah. If 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 they're 100 percent political BS. Yeah, that's. Stuff, I really you know, don't. Yeah. I really, I really, really, really wish Facebook would just have an option where you don't see political posts. <laughs> like you could just pick the kind of posts I'd like: entertainment, film, you know, books. That that's it. The, that's what I'd like, you know. Uh, and then you could her out that way. That would be great. Uh, but unfortunately, you can't. So I have to curate a little bit. And I don't want, uh, you know, those kind of posts crawling up my wall all the time. So, um, 
but for the most part, you know, people who friend me, uh, I accept their friend requests because, uh, you know, that's the purpose of, for me being on social media. So that's one easy way. Uh, and, uh, I'll be heading around, you know, uh, doing some signings or they're, they're, they're filling up, but, uh, for people in the, the Houston area, I'll probably have a few, um, coming up. Unfortunately, uh, as of airing, I've already done three or so in this area, area, but, uh, on November 5th, I'll be in the Woodlands by the book. Um, on the 13th, I'll be at the Twig uh, Bookstore in San Antonio. And uh, while we're filling up the West Coast swing right now, um, so far the Poison Pen at 7 o'clock on December 15th, I'll be signing with uh, Weston Oaks and Devon uh, Navarro. Uh, and then on the 17th, uh, December 17th, I'll be at Dark Delicacies in Burbank. Uh, and we're still filling up West Coast uh, spots there. Uh, and then uh, I'm planning on Louisiana and Alabama, too, uh, but uh, haven't gotten those on the schedule yet. It's hard. I actually got to practice the law and things like that to contend with, so uh, I can't be completely uh, completely uh, pell-mell when it comes to just throwing things on my calendar, unfortunately. Can't quit your day job. And No, I can't do that <laughs> quite yet. But um, quite yet. So... Uh, yeah, we'll see <laughs> if uh, if this becomes a uh, a series, then uh, you know, TV series. Uh, then yeah, maybe I'll be able to to cut back on practicing law. Now, uh, the book we're talking about, of course, is Moonless Nocturne and its Tales of Dark Fantasy and Horror Noir. And uh, the author, Mr. Hank Swabel, uh, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I enjoy it. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.